This is Christ Presbyterian Church, and you're listening to our School of Discipleship. Welcome to Part 4 of CPC's Membership Seminar, a five-part series that highlights the process of becoming an active member of CPC New Haven's congregation. In this episode, Pastor Graham explores the lineage of the church's family tree and what exactly does it mean to be Presbyterian. This includes a look at the logic behind its traditions and the evolution of Presbyterian governance throughout the centuries. I, I, hope, I hope you've been able to think deeply about what we talked about last night. Um, you know, I do think that if we don't have that, that context to this, then joining a church becomes something that's dutiful. And so I think that was sort of my motive, is trying to bring together temple and covenant, uh, even in the way that I, we were just talking about it. I was really encouraged that you recognize that. But, you know, did you notice we started with a story, a story of a people and a place and how they became. And then we, then we tried to frame that story in a context of covenantal understanding of who God is and what the church is. So... So yesterday was all about that. I hope now if I say the term totus Christus or total Christ, you could just right immediately say what? What would you say? What's coming to your head? Total Christ is Christ as what and Christ as what? Prophet, priest, and king. What would you say? I said word and temple. Yes, word and temple. He's both man and God. He is both, what, word and temple. And by word, we don't mean the scripture. Because scripture is actually, I don't want to say this. Uh, what is scripture? Scripture is actually a temple moment. It's the abstract word, the divine mind becoming flesh. It's becoming flesh in that scripture. Now, reason why we preach and why that's such a high sacramental event to preach is because now the scripture that was chosen to come in the first century, and I believe God intentionally chose Greek and Hebrew, and if you know the languages, you can kind of begin to see why. There's a lot more information in the grammatical structure of those two languages than any other language I know, but I don't know a lot of languages, so, you know, that doesn't tell you much of anything, I'll just be honest. But, um, but it's, there's a lot there, but, um, but it's, it's, so that's why we believe that the sermon is not a sermon until it brings into the flesh of a local congregation. So one of the things you're going to see is the way this start, works out with a both and spirituality. Uh, you know, Edwards, for instance, says, you know, what is true religion? And he came to the terms, well, true religion is religious affections. And you say, well, what is a religious affection? And he said, well, it's both heat and light. Now, what would the light be talking about, do you think, in our two-fold category? Word. Yeah. What would the heat be? Temple. Yeah. Who's answering all this? No. She wants people to talk. No, <laughs> She's my loyal wife is what she is being right now. Okay, we'll let other people talk, Lisa, okay? We'll let them, uh, we'll, they'll get in there. Um, anyway, so, uh, uh, yeah, but she's right, you know, and so I hope you're getting those categories. And, and yes, you mentioned prophet, priest, and king. Um, these temple, how, do, how does temple and, and 
and covenant get executed? How does it get transacted? Well, it's by the vocations of Christ, prophet, priest, and king, all five of which there was never a time in all redemptive history where those things were not present in salvation events. So now we've made a case for what? If someone says to you, why should I go to church? You're going to say, well, it's an essential element of the gospel. Well, how is that? Oh, that's crazy. Well, really? Let's talk about it. You know, and off you go. I did put more. This is my methodology. Some people hate it, I'll be honest, and I'm sorry. <laughs> but I would rather the five people who really hope to use this stuff have access to the kind of stuff that they could use to, to do their own studies and to do their own discipleship of their children. You know, one day your child is going to ask these questions if you have children. One day a friend's going to ask these questions. So I do put more than we cover in the, in the slides. And I know that for those who like to say, give me something that I can master. I think that's part of the problem a little bit with modern education is we, we sort of exalt those who can get everything perfect. And then what we'd end up doing is reducing what we know in order to be perfect. Um, I'm not a big fan of perfect um, and excellence. That's the death of a good church because there's a mystery. And there's sometimes you do things very imperfectly because there's 10 things to do and they all need to be done. And I calculatedly say it'd be better to have a little less of this and a little less of this, but to have both Christ as prophet and king than only to have him as a king and do it perfectly and not have, and that's part of the, the real uh, visceralness of this spirituality that we're talking about, is that Christ is in the midst of all this mess, and it's a lot of mess, um, but that's what's the glory of it. His life was a, a big mess, wasn't it, even though he wasn't. Don't be frustrated. There are some things I'm going to do, and it's just almost not for you to, it's not meant to be a teaching time. It's meant for you to be an awareness time. So I'll, I'll slow down when there's some teaching, and there will be quite a bit, but there'll be other things where it just, you know, I think, for instance, we're going to now begin with focusing less on our theology of the church and all that stuff. Today, we're much more focused on, okay, uh, let's tell, let's, let's understand what the church, what being a Presbyterian is, what it means to be a member of a church, that kind of stuff, okay? So let's begin, though, with prayer. Would someone be interested in praying for us? Anybody? Jennifer, would you? Amen. By the way, I failed to introduce or let them introduce themselves. Uh, we have some members here of our shepherd team. Um, there's Jennifer right there, and there's Alan right there. Y'all want to say just briefly, well, that's good. We'll let you talk to them later. We're running out of time. Um, but we're happy to have these guys here. Um, so let's talk about, uh, just real briefly now, just who are we? You know, where do we fit in history? And so this is our family tree, and I'm emphasizing this as a creedal history. That is, what it is, what is our family tree in terms of the lineage of our beliefs and where those beliefs come from? So very briefly, um, we need to be a little bit uh, weary of what I'm... It could look something like this. 
which would take us in a very bad direction. I don't know if you can read it, but you have this uh, church uh, membership class. See it over there to the right? And um, I don't think, yeah, can you see my little marker when I do that? Okay. So you've got that, and you're doing a history of the Christian movement, and this could be the response. And I know this is kind of stupid, but it's meant to be a little bit levity. But So this is where our movement came along and finally got the Bible right. Jesus is so lucky to have us. Um, well, this would be truly, we, we laugh a little bit maybe, but um, that really could become the product of this, and I wouldn't want it to be. Um, I even say to our church that, look, there are many other religions, much less other Christianities, and, um, and we have a lot to learn from all those other religions. They, we all believe in a God who is revealing himself in what we call common revelation, and they have access, everyone has access to that common revelation. And we do believe that God is working in many other religions, and you can learn a lot. So I want you to know that, that we are their friends. We can sit at the table. We can actually learn things from them. However, what is unique about the Christian faith, we believe, is um, this idea that we just talked about, but particularly the way in which you know, our faith, with an understanding of who God is, uh, emphasizes grace. Um, the Christianity at its core is that we're saved by grace through faith alone. And so it's the only religion that really has that idea of a grace-based versus a, a performance-based kind of, of, of salvation story. And we believe the, the uniqueness of Christ. I don't ever use the word the exclusivity of Christ, by the way. I mean, my first, my first sermon happened to be at Memorial Church in Harvard. And I'll never forget sitting there with everybody, and for some reason God had moved me to preach Romans um, 10, what it was. And, I'm think, and I walked in there with this sermon of, you know, the exclusivity of Christ. I was really going to bring it on. And it was in a very gracious way, the sermon. But thankfully, right before I went there, I just started thinking about it and said, I am not doing this in a gospel-friendly way. This is a this is a politicalized way, and I didn't, you know. So I literally, in my brain, before I stood up there, reconstructed the song, the whole thing, in the manner that Christ talks about it. And he doesn't talk about it in the exclusivity of Christ. He talks about it as the universality of Christ, that Christ is universal Lord. He's not a sectarian God. He's not a God of just the Jew or the Greek. He's not a God of the West or the East. He's a universal Lord. We can never construe him as a Lord. A, a leader that is part of this cool little set. And so that's what's important about this thing is that we don't want to do the story negating that God is at work in other religions even as, a, as just God creator. I don't necessarily mean God salvation God, but God creator, but God redeemer is at work in East and West and is at work with other you know, versions and thoughts. And yes, we're all duking it out and that's a good thing to do. And thoughts do matter. And so it's not that we're saying, so what we don't want to do is the evangelical trend in modern America is, you know, what we call lowest common denominator theology. If God taught it, it's important. And it's worth discerning. Uh, denominationalism is important. Why? Uh, because you, there is, it's true that we, we look, if, you, if you like denominationalism, then you don't even like heaven. Uh, because it's not going to be a denominationalism in heaven. So, of course, you should yearn and, and you know, strive uh, for unity and, and organic unity, not just symbolic unity. 
But on the other hand, we also believe that, that um, we, to pr if for one denomination to become imperialistic and impose its bibly informed doctrines on others is a loss of the freedom of conscience. And it's also the loss of, of the universality of Christ. How much are we different because of our uh, geopolitical ethnic form, as in temple differences, and how much of our differences are because of covenantal differences, because we really read the Bible differently. And yet, denominationalism was an attempt, listen to this, this is important, denominationalism was an attempt to actually unify the church. And you'd say, well, how is that? Well, because before denominationalism, the fights were you're either in or out. Even, even in Vatican II, you still have that category. They've expanded the kingdom of God to include other denominations, but you are not a member of the church unless you're a member of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, that is an extraordinarily schismatic notion. The reformers said you can be a member of the church of Jesus Christ and yet still be uh, you know, working at becoming one mind. And yet we want you to worship God in conscience. And so if you think you baptize children, you need to baptize children to be faithful to your God. If you don't think you do, so I would never ask a Baptist to convert to Presbyterianism in order to become part of the church. Wouldn't that be incredible? And you know every Sunday we fence the table, but we do, we say we need you to be a member of a gospel, any gospel-believing church. This is Presbyterian table. So that's, the, the, it, that's what the impetus for this little comic strip is just for you to realize that what I'm about to do, I don't want you to hear us as saying that we're not talking about us as distinguished from other non-churches. We're talking about us, our family. I mean, I'm a Graham and you're a Lucan and Lucan is still a family and Graham is still a family, but we do have a different heritage and probably different values that come out of that heritage. But this is a confessional history because we just honestly disagree what the scriptures principally teach. And yet we don't disagree to the point where we cast you out as an unbeliever. So you're going to see this in the way we end our class today. You're going to be, to join this church, you're going to take five vows. And I'm going to tell you right now, there's not one thing about that, those vows that makes you a Presbyterian. They're that, you know, a, a guy named Charles Hodge, a great theologian in our tradition, said the Presbyterian Church is the most, event, is the most uh, missional and ecumenical denomination of all. Of course, he's being, you know, rhetorical and all that. But the reason he said it is because we don't require people to fully subscribe to our confession of faith to be a member. There's a lot we believe that you don't have to believe yet to be a member here. We believe there's a birthright as being a child of God. You belong to the church, and we should not exclude you from that church because you haven't figured it all out yet, because we haven't figured it out all yet either, right? So do you understand what I just said? Anybody have a question about what I just said? That's the only thing I'm going to teach on. Now I'm just going to let you see the picture. Here's our family tree. Okay, here it goes. Well, first, I'm going to miss it. I'm just going to have to skip this. This is such good stuff. But, but we do think it's, it's a worthwhile thing to form confessions. And I just want to say one thing about it. Um, why creeds preserve scripture? We believe that creeds preserve the authority of scripture. Why? Because the real question is not as often a, a pretended between the word of God and the creed of man. 
but between the tried and proven faith of the collective body of God's people and the private judgment and the unassessed wisdom of the repudiator of creeds. Consider who has the best chance of interpreting God's word, me alone, with my Bible, or the church throughout the ages. So basically what we mean by confessionalism or creedalism is that we form our, we for, we form our consensus about what we, all the creed is is a consensus. And it's a consensus about what we think the scriptures principally teach. And we form that not with ourselves, isolated in our little partisan bubble in the West, in the Northeast of America, you know, in whiteness or blackness or all that otherness. We do that in a real conversation with our mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters of all ages, of all ethnos, of all peoples, of all places. And that's what a creed does. A creed is one community passing down their conclusions for the benefit of others as to what they believe the scriptures principally teach. That's really important to understand that. You see how ecumenical that is? Without, we got a both and going here. Temple means that we take seriously the word of God and we don't want to minimize what God has spoken there. Temple says we take seriously that that's got to get fleshed out into our context in a way that's consistent with the covenant, but fits the form that we live in. And that too comes together in a creed. So that's what a creed is. It's a consensus about what God principally teaches, what we believe the scriptures principally teach about the major categories of our faith. And, um, and to have a creed, and the creeds are alive, by the way. Creeds are living. You know why? Because every church if they believe in ordination, which is why ordination is so important, requires that an ordinan will adhere to a consensus about what the scriptures principally teach. And that means there's a crisis of conference every single time the laying of hands happens. Every single time. Hundreds of thousands of millions of trillions of times. Even within, well, probably at least millions of times in America, some person kneeled and had hands laid on them and vowed certain vows about what they believe the scriptures teach in order to be considered a healthy Christian teacher or pastor as approved by the consensus of a community. And when that happened, that person had to go back to the scripture before he got there and figure out, can I really say this in good conscience before God? Think about the energy that has been put towards examining what the words are in a creed hundreds of thousands of millions of times. That, that is an amazing thing. So when I preach, and I encourage all of our pastors to do this, I always read the Bible with my creed in, the, in my left hand. And it's like if I'm seeing something in the Scripture that seems, you know, like this is what the Scripture's saying, but it seems, I will look and say, but does that, is that fit into the scheme of a creed? If it's off the road at least gives me a big pause. Why am I disagreeing with the hundreds of millions of people who've studied scripture of different ages, of different times, and different places? Maybe I individually need to submit, but I do know this, when you come to hear a pastor preach here, you're not coming to hear Preston Graham. I said that yesterday, you never come to hear Preston Graham. Who cares what I think? You come to hear the church, and therefore I took a vow to preach the scripture Yes, the word of God, there's a lot of nuance that's not in the Westminster, 
but to submit to one another in the church as to what we principally teach. And if I have a problem with that, there's a method where I can challenge that in our church and appellate it up, right? So that's what a creed is, and that's really all I wanted you to know there. It's useful for a lot of good reasons. I'm not going to go through them. Um, this shows you how different uh, traditions relate to Scripture. Uh, the Anabaptists, it's Scripture and me, or us, depending on your view. Uh, the Roman Catholic, it's Scripture through tradition to us. And these are very helpful. Uh, what we believe is the rest of the church mostly, you know, Lutherans, Episcopalians, Methodists, I go through all the other denominations. What we believe is this, that there is the Scripture to us. So Scripture comes, we all have Scripture and we all have tradition, and tradition and scripture are interacting. And so I read scripture with the tradition. That's all we're saying. And we believe that is the, what we see in scripture. The word tradition is found quite often in scripture, actually, to mean that. So with that being said, we start with there being a history of saying so. In other words, confessing theology is just saying, I'm going to come out and say it. That's all it is. You're confessing it. It's a public profession of faith is what a creed is. And we see that in the scripture, in the history of Israel, Peter's confession, probably the earliest, briefest Christian confession is found in 1 Corinthians 12, Jesus is Lord. Early apostolic statements, and I give you some of those, a call to confess, as you see in these scripture passages. Again, I don't want you to study it right now, just be aware of it. So where does it start in the church history? Well, certainly it starts with the first century, uh, the foundation of the apostles that we have in scripture confessing what the Lord, the faith in Jesus Christ is, and all built on Jesus Christ. Then you go to the second, third generation, and now you're looking at canonical controversies. Contrary to the Gnostic uh, myth, uh, the scriptures were pretty much settled by the third century. Um, and it was conferred, uh, the church doesn't, doesn't um, what's the language? It's conferred, not, anybody remember that? I'm blanking on that term, but we don't make the scriptures. We just recognize them. That's, that's basically the way I'm saying. We recognize what scripture is. And contrary to the myth of the Gnostic gospels that have come out recently with the, you know, all that Da Vinci stuff, is, is that um, it was not, the church at the time was not Christendom. So this is not a power move by the, 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 the you know, by the, the male hierarchy of the church of the fifth century. Um, it's true by the 5th century it's become very Christendom. But this is by those who are the oppressed. By, at the time of the 3rd and 2nd century, you're talking very oppressed people who were conferring, or recognizing, I should say, uh, the scripture as from those. And the, and the signs were what? That, you know, apostolic, you had to be an apostle, or at least representing an apostle's teaching. That was very key. They had personal three-year seminary training by Jesus Christ himself. And when you read what they wrote, you realize that all those little backroom conversations, I mean, it's phenomenal what these guys are writing. People who started off farmers and fishermen, and, and all of a sudden they're writing at levels that PhDs are still studying. They really had some serious training, lest we don't think otherwise. The next generation, um, the Apostles' Creed, I, jump, I throw it in there. We don't know. The legend um, has it that apostles wrote the creed on the 10th day after Christ's ascension into heaven. That is not the case, though the name stuck. However, each of the doctrines found in the creed can be traced to statements current to the apostles, period. The earliest written version of the creed is perhaps the uh, interrogatory creed of 
Hippolytus, which is AD 215. In its current form, uh, the first one we've got is in 542. So we don't know when it was done. It could have been developed. The, the for, first real formal, what we call ecumenical creed, that's part of our tradition, uh, as with the Roman Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox, is the Nicene Creed. We're getting into uh, the, uh, you know, Trinity controversies and, and particularly Christology controversies now. The Athanasian Creed. Um, let's see here. And then you go into the 4th and 5th century where you see the split of the East and West, particularly with a, with a big controversy between Nestorius of Constantinople and Bishop Cyril of Alexandria. Nestorius focusing on the temple flesh of Christ and Cyril focusing on the word deity of Christ. And that's important, by the way, because they weren't thinking of, of we import into Christology today our philosophical concepts. They were much more salvific and soteriologically in their, which is the word for salvation concept. Jesus is temple. Jesus is word. And that made it for a very different conversation. But they did begin to split. You can see some of the councils there uh, where we would, at least historically, be aligned with the West more than the East. But at least in this church, and I think in a lot of places now, there's a lot that we're seeing that overlap, and we're rediscovering that. Um, you know, I just don't have time to teach all this, but it's, you know, one is more forensic or legal focused West. One is much more presence focused, which is East. One's going to focus on doctrines. One's going to focus on, on liturgies and how we learn the faith. And we believe they're both right. Okay. And so I want you to hear that. There's a sympathy. I even got you some quotes if you were interested um, on the Eastern Orthodox John Zazulis and his understanding of spirituality, and then, and then reformer John Calvin. And you go, wow, they agree. The reformer John Calvin agrees. John Calvin is known for his mysticism, by the way. He wrote a lot of the mystics, and he made great room for the mystics. A little historical anecdote, uh, in America, we studied John Calvin in seminary, and people had a very high view of sacraments, high view of the church as a temple uh, into the 19th century. But then after that, we started studying... Um, yeah, Turretin, which was much more scholastic, much more philosophical, and you lost the sacramental edge in the, in the in Presbyterian circles. So you have a Presbyterianism that's much more along with mystic, mystical communion, um, even to this day, that trace themselves back to those who affirm that side, uh, having studied out of certain seminaries, and then you have others that are much more rationalistic and have a very low view of sacraments, even within the PCA, even though our Confession of faith is very John Calvinist. And even Charles Hodge, who disagreed with one of the guys that he was arguing with, who, who did the Mystic Communion again? Nevin. Um, he had a, I did a big study on their debate, and he even conceded that Nevin had Calvin right. And Nevin's the guy that wrote the Mystic Communion. And um, so, so don't let anyone tell you, if you're coming from a PCA church, that this church seems really over-sacramental. Well, that comes back to that divide that happened in the 19th century in America, where some read Calvin, some read this, and it created a tradition. Um, but we're, but in, you'll see, it's very clearly in our confession that we're Calvinistic. So, um, now we're moving on to the 15th, 16th century. That's, of course, the Reformation. We certainly see ourselves as within the family tree of Luther and Calvin, not the Anabaptists, not the Catholics uh, or Roman Catholics. You see some of the names there. And out of that came just a proliferation of confessions, people writing confessions 
as a consensus as to what they believe for their particular space of property, basically. These were all related to where they lived and what our church in this region is going to believe. And so you have the Scots Confession, 1560, 2nd Helvetic in 1561, and off we go. Heidelberg is one of our favorites here. It's a very, uh, it's written in a very personal way. People love studying it. Uh, Westminster's uh, universally probably the clearest confession of all of them. It's a good constitutional, if you will, if your church is looking for a, what is it we believe in a very, you know, careful, precise way. It's incredibly beautiful. Um, that's what we affirm as our creed, but we would affirm all these creeds more or less. And some churches in our tradition do have what they call forms of unity versus just one. We, we saw that in our beginning as, as creating a, a problem with things like discipline and which creed are we going to use for what. And so they, but these are all of our creeds, you could say. And um, out of the, uh, you know, just one, particularly out of the Synod of Dort, uh, you see that one down in AD 16, came out this famous little, and it's very polemical, which is why I don't use it. They came up with TULIP, you know, the idea of a sovereign God and grace, but total depravity, everyone sins, and the total person, not that everyone sins totally, there's a common grace, but total depravity, unconditional election, our restoration begins with God's free, unconditional grace, applied to God's choosing, limited atonement, not everyone is saved, it's not universal atonement, irresistible grace, it's a gift of God. If God gives it to you, you can't resist it. It's not because we don't have will. By the way, don't let any, you know, everybody when you say Presbyterian, what's the first thing you think of? Predestination. Do you know we don't have a chapter on predestination? We have a whole chapter on free will. Now, we do believe in predestination and election. But it's interesting the way the polemics is framed it. And I don't like TULIP because it's a, it was actually framed by the, by the antagonist of the Presbyterians. And, and so, so others have rewritten it this way. Faith, fallen humanity, adopted by God, intentional atonement, transformed by the Holy Spirit, held by God. It's a much more positive way of defining our view of salvation uh, that came out of the top, Tulip. Um, Protestant versus Catholic, what distinguishes from those? Historically, people will think of the solas. Now, there's no reformer that articulated, here are the five solas of, of the faith. But these were the things that they were talking about all the time. Uh, we believe that scripture alone is our only rule of faith and practice. We believe that faith alone, that's the sola, is how we receive salvation, not faith plus works. We believe that grace alone begins our salvation, which is a nice way of saying it begins with God. Think about it. If your salvation, if you have a chain of events, it's this big, right? Little chains. Where is it weak? Where, how strong is that chain? It's as strong as the weakest link. If, it, if just one link is you, your salvation depends on that link. So the, what we believe is that there's no link in this chain of events where it's not God. And you take one link out, you're a semi-Calvinist, if you will. You're a, some people call it the four... Mark, Calvin, or something like that. Um, it's just, that's an oxymoron. You, you either believe that God is sovereign in all aspects relative to our faith. Now, when you take the confession theology class, you're going to learn a lot about that, and you're going to come away believing in free will. But you're going to believe it not as an, uh, it, it, the way I define it there is it's, it's always relative, though. Free will is always relative. 
We even say that in our physicality. It's relative to my DNA. It's relative to my upbringing. It's relative to this. Well, if we believe in God, it's always going to be relative to God and his activity in my life. But it's free. In a temporal sense, it's free. You've got decisions to make, and you've got consequences when you make them. We all know that. One, people, one person said, J.F. Packer says, look, everybody believes in sovereignty because everybody prays. No one would pray if you didn't believe in sovereignty. <laughs> you know, and so it's kind of a lot to do about nothing sometimes. Sola Christus, of course, Christ alone uh, is, is the way to, is the truth and the way in the life. There's no other, it's not Christ plus church. You can see how this comes out in the thing. Um, and then Sola Deo Gloria, only everything we do, it's not for our own uh, uh, glory, it's for the glory of God. So five solas is very crucial to our tradition. Um, I'm not going to tell you the background of Westminster. It's an amazing document, but that's what we believe. I do want to mention, though, a couple of things about what are the distinctive emphases in Presbyterian polity. The word Presbyterian, now this is where you probably say, I think it's starting to sound like a membership class. They're actually going to tell me what Presbyterian means. Everything I've been doing so far has not been about us, really, not particularly. But here we are, Presbyterian. Um, by the way, is there anything that somebody's just itching to ask me about what we just covered? You can do that, I promise. And I hope you're starting to feel safe to do it. All right, y'all just having fun listening to me. Okay, go. Well, obviously, the, the way I said it sounds pejorative, so I could probably be more gracious in the way I say it. I don't think people are trying to do that necessarily. So let me, let me I'm, I'm glad you let me catch myself. Um, so the, the argument is total Christ, what we talked about last night in some ways. We, in other words, we, we believe that, that God's, if God spoke, if God reveals it in Scripture, it's not arbitrary. Now, we don't think all Scriptures are important for the same things. So for instance, there's much about what we believe, let's say even say in our consensus of the Westminster Standard, as I said, that we're not gonna expect you to believe in order to be in this church. We just want to know that you know enough, that you can assent to enough, such that if you re genuinely receive it and rest on it, you're a Christian and you're part of our family. I don't tell my child, you're not in this house until you can agree with all your daddy says. Uh, that would have been lost before they even got started. Um, but I do say, but, but to the best of my ability, I'm not going to treat anything I think that is important as not important. And so what we're saying is simply that if Christ taught it, um, who am I to disqualify it as a topic of importance? So when you join our church, we're going to say you don't have to, we're at peace with the fact that you don't agree with us on some things. As long as you can be at peace to believe that we really believe this and we don't think it'd be loving for you not to try to get you to believe it. So I'm going to try to get you to believe everything we believe if you come to this church. I'm going to treat that as an important thing. But hopefully I do it respectfully and I do it in the context of a safety where we know you have full membership privileges here. Now, up to a point. On the other hand, there's going to be certain things that are taught in Scripture that it would be important for you to believe it if you were a shepherd in this church. 
there are clear qualifications that distinguish you from the other members in places like 1 Timothy 3, which has a whole qualification list of what is it you must believe in, what is it you must be in order to be a, a, a shepherd elder. And we're going to say, okay, so we're going to take that seriously. And that's important. You know, when, and, and at the cores you're going to see, I'm about to show you some wonderful things about what Presbyterianism is, and you'll hear about the regular principles. So I'll, you'll see a little bit why that comes up in a minute, to be able to distinguish between what are those truths in Scripture that are by good and necessary inference worthy of binding your conscience. But then there are other directed things in Scripture that make room for a divided form and how they get manifest. Like, you know, even Peter, Paul says it very explicitly once. He says, hey, not, not God, but me advise that not many of you get married. <laughs> um, now, we need to rediscover celibacy, by the way, because he had a very high view of celibacy. We should be, too. It's a noble and honorable calling. Uh, some people choose it. Some people, God, providence choose it, but we need to affirm it, that it can be, a, you can flourish. It's not, being married doesn't mean or not married does not mean you can't flourish. In fact, you know, all the apostles flourished, only one was married. So we know that. Um, so does that help? Does that answer a little bit? Yeah. Temple is a true temple with a unique presence of Christ in it. And it has been orthodoxy up until rather recently post-enlightenment, with the exception of some very radical fringe groups. But we believe that, that Jesus, the mediator, the sole priest, contains in himself by way of eminency, which means he's alone the priest, and then the second thing, but from the throne of glory, his ascension, he mediates that through the church. That's a very significant thing, because if that's true, then polity matters. Everybody likes to say that lowest common denominator, well, that stuff on church government's not important. Well, not if you actually think Jesus is present here, which means to the degree that we do it the way he choreographed it, is to the degree that he's really present here. See, for us to fight for church government and the right way to do it is fighting for the full, healthy presence of Christ in your life. That's what this is. It is not a, you know, little topic over there that's meaningless. And believe me, when you see some of these other principles, you're going to see why. So therefore, with a church already, because we're a mediatorial body, we have no right to make a law. That goes back to what I said the other day. There, we have no right to make one law. You can't impose your law on me, your pastor, and say you sinned. And I can't impose the law of the church on you. You sinned if it's not by both good and necessary inference derived from Scripture. Everybody can do a good inference. You know, somebody said to somebody, Lisa, you said somebody said to you yesterday that they were very astute that they've been going to a church, and I'm not going to ever mention it, but that, that sort of started with the application and went and found scripture to find it. That was the opposite direction of how you want to do things, right? Because you can't make a law because you can, oh, I, I could tell you to buy a blue, a blue car with a good inference from scripture probably. I'm not lying. The sky's blue. He obviously has a preference for blue. You should buy blue cars. It's the God way to do things. I don't know. Kind of stupid, I know. But you could do it. And Christendom got, has gotten very lax on this, and there's a ton of laws that I think probably many of you have been hurt by. Rules, laws, the way we've mentalized things. The moment it gets into a political environment in, a, in, type, in the life of a church, it gets into slippery slope arguments. It gets into guilty by association arguments. 
So what can a woman do in the church? Oh, but we got to be the church that does this. Or what can we believe about creation? Oh, we got to be the church that believes in creation. So therefore, we can't believe in evolution. Really? Personally, as a pastor, I have no opinion about evolution. Because I can't go to the scripture to find it. Because it's not mentioned at all. It's not the purpose of the scripture to tell you how God made the world. I can tell you as a person who was a science major in college, I believe in evolution. And has no contradiction to my faith that God made all things whatsoever out of nothing. Whether it's through a guided evolutionary process, whether it's through an unguided. See, that's the big issue. Guided or unguided. For me. Personally. But the scripture doesn't teach about that. But the church started to do that in a controversy with fundamentalism where, oh, we have to preserve the scripture, therefore you can't read the scripture according to its original intent. We have to read the scripture according to literary interpretation always. We just don't read poetry like that. Genesis 1 and 2 is poetry. 1 is poetry. Genesis 2 is a history. That's why you have two creations, and they have very significant meanings in the covenant for doing it that way. A covenant prologue, I mean a, a, a prologue and a... Um, you know, and then the history that follows, all the great works of God. So anyway, that's the first thing, mediatory body. Can you just define, I'm not sure if everyone knows, immediate, immediately exercising, or mediator. Immediate versus mediated. Yeah, so the opposite would be immediate, what would that be? Infallible of the essence, Jesus Christ. So if, you're if Jesus comes right here in bodily form and starts talking to you, that's immediate. If he's not here, but he is here by the Holy Spirit, Mystically, in communion with the church, he's mediated. The, the, the practical significance is that reminds us that we're fallible. We can err. And that's important. Okay? Which is why we have to be careful about how we read scripture. And that's why we read it with our community of all ages. Because we have a lot better chance of getting scripture right when we get out of my own skin, geopolitical, social, whatever it is. And I'm reading with people like Jonathan Edwards, who would wake up in the morning, go out and cut a chicken's head off, get on a horse, ride down to the place for 10 hours. He had nothing to do with the, world, with the life that I live. But he's reading the same Greek text as I am every Sunday. I can't tell you as a pastor how unbelievably moving it is sometimes when I'm reading scripture. I say, well, let me go see what Calvin does. He, Calvin takes explicit notes on the Greek and the, and when he does it. And I go there and go, look at here, look at this. John Calvin's saying the same thing I'm seeing in this text. I can't believe this, a guy I never knew. It lives in Geneva. Spoke another language. You know, it's so beautiful when you see that, which is why we require every pastor to learn original languages. It's very important. Okay, government. The word Presbyterian comes from the word presbyter, which is the Greek word for elder. It's most of our denominations are named after our form of government. Isn't that sad? That's <laughs> kind of weird. But it's the way it is. And so you got, what, prelacy or hierarchicalism or episcopacy, which is going to be, you'll see in a minute. Or you've got uh, congregationalism, which is going to be different. We believe in representational government, a government that, is, this, that requires for someone to be ordained. He first has to demonstrate to the church that he is according to apostolic succession. And that apostolic succession is chosen by his being in conformity to the tradition that was handed down by the apostles. But he also has to be chosen by the people. They have to recognize in this person the gifts of pastor and want that pastor for themselves before you can be ordained. You don't go to seminary and then have an ordination service. You may go to seminary, you may not, but somehow you got to learn the apostolic tradition and then you're going to have to, a church is going to have to examine you according to that a consensus that they have about the apostolic tradition to make sure you're not a false teacher 
And if all that works out, then the congregation has to say, we, the Spirit of God, is causing us, choosing, or moving us to call this man or woman to be our pastor. Okay? So that's how that works. Um, Old Testament witness. You see it. I'm not going to go through this. But in the Old Testament, you can pretty much see it. There was two, there was an elder system with two classes, priest and head of household. You see it all through the Old Testament. The word elder shows up everywhere. I just gave you a few. In the New Testament, oh, surprise, you see the same thing. Two classes, one, um, you know, two classes of elders. There, it's pastor, elder, and deacon, elder. The main argument you would see here in the New Testament, I find in 1 Timothy, where there's this two-part uh, episkopos, which is bishop, pastor, or pastor, uh, bishop, pastor, overseer, and there's these qualifications for them, that person. And then it goes likewise, which means it's like this one. These are the qualifications. Now, the only difference between the two is one teaches, one doesn't. So sometimes in our tradition, we call them teaching elders and ruling elders. They assist in ruling, but they don't, they're not qualified to teach in the, in, the, in the public sense of teaching and vice versa. And the other one is ruling, but these are the assistants. I could go back to the story of Moses and Jethro and how Jethro helped Moses to establish that system. He needed more people to help him rule. You go back to Acts and you see the appointment of Stephen, which I believe was a deacon elder, and, and he was appointed along with others to help the apostles rule because they would need to be focused on ministry of word and sacrament. And that's what this is. There's a ministry of focusing on word and sacrament and bringing vision to the congregation, and then there's a ministry of governing and ruling and shepherding, and there's no way one pastor can do that beyond about 20 or 30 people. <laughs> so how are you going to do it if you're doing it really well, like in visitations, things like that? So that's our system of government. Three, we believe each congregation is organically connected to the other congregations in a real, organic, which means accountable way. The local takes priority as to the, the most purest church is the local church, if you mean by that because it's closer to the flesh, temple. And yet there's an appellate system that forks itself out in the way that you deal with controversies, etc., and even the way you participate together in certain things that you share in mission through different grades of councils or presbyteries, we call them. Presbytery is the word for a council of elders. So you've got elder rule governing a council of elders. And so in that system, you have this both local, which is the local session called the session, session of elders. And you have global, by that I mean those who are moving in concentric circles further and further away. There's no definition of scripture as to how many circles you could have. For instance, in America, if you were here in the 19th century, we had session, we had city presbytery, we had regional synod, we had supposedly worldwide general assembly, which is really only America. And that's a sad reality. One of my saddest things about our denominations, we, we have a spirit of globalism, but it's still a PCA. Humbly, I'm sorry, I'd take that word America out of our, I don't think America should ever be in our, in our name, because that's not how we define ourselves theologically. Um, and so with that being, although there could be an American synod or an American, call it something else, level of, of an assembly just for the ge geographical convenience of it. There is an argument in here for that. You'll see it. Um, but just to show you uh, one thing, though, to, you know, this is a big issue, of course, about connectedness with our Baptist friends or, or independent friends. 
And um, so just think about it. Biblically, are doctrinal matters local or general? When you had a doctrinal problem, how did they solve it? They took it to the council in Acts 15 in Jerusalem. They were organically united. Biblically, are disciplinary matters local or general? 1 Corinthians 5. Does Paul remove the sinning individual from Corinth, or does he require the Corinth church to remove him? You see, there's things like that. Biblically, are diaconal matters local or general? We can just go right through it. And over and over you say, hold it. There was always this local, global connectivity going on in the life of the church. To explain the difference, there's three basic forms of government. I don't care who you call yourself. You could be Bible church, fellowship church, Presbyterian church, but you're one of these three. Prelacy, it's a hierarchical system, which means you've got, it's that succession that's typically in the line of a particular individual who has incredible authority. My, one of my best friends is the Archbishop of the Anglican Church of North America, Foley Beach. He's a very good friend. And I've said to him many times, I could be an Anglican tomorrow except for this. I just can't make my peace with Christ's authority being through. I mean, Foley has the power to admit you and demit you from the church. Foley has the power to tell you you're a pastor or not. He has the power to do anything he can do. And he'd be an idiot to do it that way, and he wouldn't. <laughs> He's going to have counsel from the local churches, etc. But that's the hierarchical system. Um, and it's, uh, and he, he, they, uh, it's an appointment system in the sense that he will then appoint. You have to be appointed by the archbishop who is appointed by the, you know, the top dog. And this is America, the Bishop of America by the top dog. I can't remember his name in the new the Anglican church. But um, you see how it works? That's hierarchicalism. That's prelacy, we call it. Independency, each separate congregation is not connected to other congregations, so they have, they're independent I know there's a couple of independent Presbyterian churches in America. Usually that meant independent of the state. They were declaring themselves independent in that sense. But from a poly point of view, that would be an oxymoron. <laughs> you can't be independent Presbyterians. We're accountable to one another of other congregations. And there's a separate congregation. And Presbyterianism is, like I said, representative and connectoral. Um, there's a quote I put in here that I think, uh, yeah, this is a credible quote by by Clowney, which I think I want to read about this idea, because within the congregational, within this connectionalism, you're going to ask, well, where is the ultimate center? If you have most churches, you know, so when I say the word Rome, what do you think of from ecclesial point of view? Okay, thank you. Roman Catholic Church. If I say Canterbury, what am I thinking? Church of England. Constantinople, what am I thinking? Yeah. Uh, Atlanta? Thankfully, you're thinking nothing. Don't even say it. <laughs> Why? Well, our headquarters is in Atlanta, but no one thinks that's our epicenter of our, of our, no one thinks that. For Presbyterians, our understanding, and I think this is so brilliant, is that we have no epicenter on earth. We have one epicenter in heaven where Christ is enthroned, and then you have multiple forms, so the elementalness of our unity is in heaven, and there are many manifest forms that that, el that takes within all the local context. So he says it this way, the organic concept of the church that appears in the New Testament has made a particular deep mark upon the Presbyterian mind. Presbyterian polity does not stand against the centralized Catholicism of Rome and the decentralized independency of con congregationalism as a mediating way. Rather, it presents not by one earthly hierarchical center, 
nor by many earthly congregational centers, but by a heavenly center that requires multi-form earthly manifestations. Earthly assemblies do not define us, or I don't know what happened there, manifest the nature and center of the church. Um, that is huge more than you know. Because if the church that I visited in Zambia as a Presbyterian church that we helped form, it's going to look very different than our church. Um, it's, it, this is a statement against American colonialism. That's what one way you could take it. It would be an anathema for a Presbyterian to co colonize an American version of a church in Africa. And if we've done that, it's this American idolatry that's doing it. And so we want the church to be deeply African, and yet not deeply African theology. That's a misnomer. I had a big conference with African pastors when I was there about that. I don't believe in black theology, you know, male theology, blue, red, red. I don't believe in There's only one God. There's only one theology that's orthodoxy. But I do believe in black forms of the same theology. In other words, it's like clothes you wear, mannerisms you wear, language that you use. I don't think Westminster Confession of Faith, I mean, let's just be honest. It's a deeply Anglicanized or Anglo-centric form of truths that are not the exclusive right or belonging of an Anglican world. See what the difference is? This sets up a what we do a lot here in this church. We talk about both and. We are both and at once believers of one Lord, one confession. And we will speak it and, and contextualize it differently wherever we go. And the key is to discern what is an element of our faith, which we all have to adhere to across all the boundaries, and what is a form of our faith, which we can all differ in. And there it goes back to this next principle, the regular principle. I think this is the most missionary principle that you could possibly have to me is sacred principle the regular principle basically says this one there's the exclusive lordship of jesus christ there's no other lord and we are you're amazed in church history how you can have more than one lord while professing christ to be lord why was the roman church requiring latin for instance this is Reformation issues. Why was it required that the liturgy be written in the Anglican or Roman church by those people who were sitting in England? You see, these are big issues. And the Reformers got into this, and, and, and the Anglican church is a Reformational movement, and our beef with the Re Anglicans, and again, it's a friendly beef. We love them. They're our brothers. Remember, family. Just another family. But... But our beef is, you know, you did great, man. You talk about Cranmer and all these guys. You did great, but you just stopped at worship. Because we think that you're injecting an epicenter that's not heaven when you injected the, the, the subscription, the Book of Common Prayer, and the subscription to liturgy. Because what we believe is that you need to be a spirit-filled pastor who brings the, who lets the scripture direct liturgy, but not subscribe to it. So we have what's called not a Book of Common Prayer, which is a subscription of liturgy. We have what's called a directory of worship, a directory of, of discipline, a directory, which means we take the principles of the scripture, but every local church has to make that localized. 
which is why you're going to come, even if we all PCA churches believe the same elements, and we supposed to anyway, it's all there. No doubt if you've been in a church in, you know, I don't know, Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, and you come to this church, if it doesn't look differently, we're both doing something really wrong. Because it's necessarily part of being a temple to look differently. And we deal with different issues here. You can tell my tone up here is a very, it's, it's a very cynical, responding tone. I don't think you'd get that in Charlotte as much. And there's a reason for that. So that's the issue. Exclusive Lordship of Christ, the sufficiency of Scripture. We don't think we need to add anything to it. We believe it's all there. Everything we need to know is by good and necessary consequence may be to do some scripture unto which nothing at any time can be added, whether new revelations of the Spirit, that's coming back, or traditions of men. And then the liberty of conscience, that's what this is mostly about. The liberty of conscience clause is so powerful, and you need to know this coming a member. You need to hear this for our church and for any other church you go to. And it's this. We believe... That, I'm going to read it. That God alone, this is the very bottom there, if you can read it, I know it's small. God alone is the Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to the word, stop. I don't know of one good Christian church. I don't think I know of one Christian church of any denomination who would argue with what I just said. Don't, don't make straw men. The Catholics would never say, you've got to believe something contrary to the word because we tell you to. That was never their argument. That was not the beef of the Reformation. And yet that's what I hear people say. Oh, we're not going to. You, 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 you agree with the church until it disagrees with the, with the scripture. No. You don't have to di disagree with the church just because it's not contrary to the scripture. You can disagree with the church because you don't think it's supported in scripture. And so here's the way it goes. This is our confession. First thing it tells you, hey, here's the confession of faith, our consensus of faith. This is what we Share together is our common interpretation of the scripture. But just in case you may be tempted, don't make us scripture because we're not. It will tell you later, by the way, if you have a controversy, don't come to us, the confession, go back to scripture. But here's the way it says here. Which are in anything contrary to the word, got it, or, here's the key word, beside it. So that to believe any such doctrine or to obey any such command out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience. The first, this is number two of chapter 20. First one says, it tells you how Christ died to set you free from the oppression of other lords and of other people. That makes me cry. That really makes me cry. I'm moved by that. He gives me permission not to have any other pressure in my life, ultimately. Now, I want people to bring me to the Lord. I need parents to do that. I need pastors to do that. I need other people to do that. But isn't that really good? I'm saying that because I just know in a room this big that you've probably been hurt, and I will be guaranteeing you. I would say most of the pain and the suffering that I or others have experienced in the church is when the church went off the reservation of this principle and started doing things in a manner that were not necessarily uh, in the Scripture. Um, I could start talking about several things that I would say the scripture needs to restrain itself on. It's, what this does is it restrains the church. Is it wrong to drink? I'll choose that one because that's an easy one. Do I choose to drink? Well, we're not, we're, we're going we're gonna, to, our position is not you're unchristian if you don't drink scotch. 
Some of us might get close. I don't know. No, we don't. We don't. Not at all. Not playfully. Um, but we certainly don't. So it's never that. But it's a very strong position that, but we cannot let anyone who doesn't drink scotch treat anyone like they're less Christian because they do. Now, you just expand that to about a million things and a million practices. Who, who serves communion and how do you serve it? What do you preach in? Do you serve in a robe or do you not? Do you kneel or do you not? Do you do this, do you not? Do you do this and do you not? Almost all of those things that really divide the church, almost all of them typically in this localized, I mean, in, in a kind of a denominational sense, are things that we would call forms, not elements, where there's freedom. And so please don't judge the church, as Christ sees it, based on perhaps your experience with a particular church, and maybe naively, maybe not, I don't want to impose impugn motives, maybe they were really trying to be faithful and just were clear, but just maybe it's a form issue, and, and it didn't need to happen that way. And that's why this principle is so important. Don't ever forget it. Most of you will not be in this church more than five, six, seven years, maybe, I don't know, because of the patterns, and I hope you never forget this. You have rights, and that right is to have one Lord. I just love this. Liberty of conscience. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Subscribe to CPC's podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. If you liked this show, consider a five-star rating. Share with your friends or write to us at podcast at cpcnewhaven.org. See you next time.